Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, and welcome to New Books and Genocide Studies, part of the New Books Network of podcasts. My name is Kelly McFall from Newman University, and I'm the host of the show. Today is the second of my occasional summer series on the question of how to respond to mass atrocities. Last time, I talked with Scott Strauss about his new book, Fundamentals of Genocide and Mass Atrocity Prevention. Later in the summer, I'll talk with James Waller and Carrie Booth Walling. Today, I have the great pleasure of speaking with Bridget Conley Zilkich. Bridget is the editor of How Mass Atrocities End, published by Cambridge University Press. The book starts from a simple premise, that understanding what to do to bring mass atrocities to an end requires an understanding of how they actually do come to an end. The essays included in the volume are universally excellent, and they help us recognize that mass atrocities end in a variety of complicated ways. Reading them made me think again about many of my assumptions about how we should respond when mass atrocities break out. Bridget is extraordinarily qualified to edit such a collection. I'll let her talk a little bit in a moment about her background. Here I'll just say that some of you may recognize her voice. For years, she was the host of Voices in Genocide Prevention, a podcast produced by the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum. I'm pleased today to give her a chance to be on the other side of the microphone. So with that, Bridget, welcome to the show, and thanks for joining us on New Books in Genocide Studies. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. So I, I often start out by asking uh, people to say a little bit about how they got to where they are. Uh, and so let me start by saying um, your degree, I think, is in comparative literature. How did, how did you end up with a degree in comparative literature, and how did you get from there to here? Yeah, so my Ph.D. is in comparative literature um, from Binghamton University and um, a program that was uh, very theoretical, and I had um, – a really wonderful support system and mentor um, in Tom Keenan, who um, works on literary theory and also has had a long-standing interest in human rights um, discourse and um, humanitarian intervention at the time when I worked with him in the mm-hmm. 90s. And I think what really interested me was how we tell ourselves stories about where we intervene within which frameworks. Um, which is is quite apt for genocide, um, mm-hmm. which to me anyway has always carried a, a narrative thread underneath it with some of its, particularly the legal definition, um, that has a lot to do with how you tell the story of what's happening in a place and a little bit, um, you know, an ethical story, but also a political story. Um, I'm not a lawyer, so the legal story isn't as relevant to what I do, but... But there are all these storytelling dimensions because, you know, it's, it's not um, with the idea of an intent to destroy and the nature of the groups targeted. It's, it's really a, a way of, of trying to um, layer a framework onto how we see and understand diverse events, violent events. Um, and so it actually, I mean, I think, I think it's an apt degree. Um, mm-hmm. perhaps uh, unorthodox Um but it is relevant. So, so my sense is that you're working with 
at least many of the people in the field are social scientists. Um, what have you learned from them and what can you teach them? Yeah, so I have learned a lot from social science um, colleagues, because, you know, obviously comparative literature and the humanities. Um, mm -hmm. And when I left the, I mean, if nothing else, just the, the, the core sort of methodologies, questions, and approaches, um, um, you know, are, are relevant, particularly when I was at the Holocaust Museum, spent a lot of time um, reading human rights reports um, and a little bit less academic work, but still, you know, analysis of past cases um, or ongoing threats. And when I came to uh, um, World Peace Foundation, we're affiliated with the Fletcher School at Tufts University. Mm -hmm. I spent a lot of time reading political science um, research, which I hadn't done systematically. And from them, I think you can you can learn a lot, particularly in more quantitative studies, um, but but also more analytical ones. Um, a lot about how to ask a sharp question, mm. um, which I think I mean you can learn it from many fields, but I think political science does it does it very well um, to ask a question that is answerable, at least ideally, um, that has great specificity and can be tested in some way. Um, and I think that there's a sense of the rigor there that cuts into some of the assumptions, um, or at least it can, that um, that can be found in some more qualitative or narrative approaches from the humanities. Uh, now, the flip side of that question that you asked is mm -hmm. what can they learn um, from um, a humanities approach, or at least the one that, that I take. Um, and that, I think, is the power and importance of how a story is told. Something that can't be quantified. Um, and when we're talking about violence of this scale, scope, and, and, and extreme nature, um, you know, mass atrocities or genocide, there is an element to it that I think we have to, um, it's a, in a phrase that I, I use a lot, um, respect the violence. Um, by that, I don't mean... Um, that it has to happen, like any inevitability or, or anything like that, but to always carry a sense of, of humility about mm -hmm. what we can understand um, and how we understand it and how the tools that we have, which we have to use, right? We have to be analytically sharp and, and, um, and rigorous. Um, but to also understand that at the same time, we will never be able to capture... Um, the brutality and scarring trauma of that which we study. And that's not an excuse, um, right? And there are people who I think rely on that too much. Um, it should be constantly propelling us to try harder to understand it. Um, but to just, you know, like I said, have respect for what it does to a society the, um, and how it makes so many other things more difficult. You, you teach a course on this. How, how do you get that across to students? Yeah, so, um, and Fletcher is really great. I mean, it has students from all over the world, from many different backgrounds. So you can't go into teaching in that context with any real assumptions except, you know, a basic passion for the, for the issues. Um, I always start um, the course with a little section on um, how we represent violence. 
And the goal there is to just try to start people off with a really critical view and looking um, very intentionally at different ways that violence is framed. Um, so lately I've been starting it with Susan Sontag's um, um, regarding the pain of others. And, and then have students look at um, news pieces, um, artistic interpretations, and um, um, some advocacy pieces all on the same topic. So not necessarily genocide. Um, last year, I think we, we did some on um, um, Syria would be one example, but also on um, violence against children was one. Um, and, um, and so looking across these different disciplines, how do different ways of approaching violence, what what frameworks are used, what questions are provoked, which ones are covered over, where do people think the answer lies, right? What's, what kind of um, responsive framework is invoked? Um, and with that, I mean, one, it's just helpful, I think, to get students talking right away, so to have a presentation within, you know, the first two weeks of, of a course. Um, but two, to really... Um, pose that question to them right away. And then we read political science and even a more literary piece um, and analytical and, you know, case histories, really diverse thereafter. But the, but the idea to start is is to think very seriously about the ethical frameworks um, and that we put around this kind of violence. Hmm. Well, you, you mentioned... You mentioned, well, well, let's turn to the book, and you mentioned narratives, and you mentioned the importance of asking a particular question, and and you start the book, actually, by talking about a particular narrative that many people have about how atrocities end, and, and you label this a salvation narrative. Well, what is this, What do you mean by salvation narrative, and, and where does it come from? Yeah, so salvation narrative, what I mean is that um, responding to genocide in particular, and I think that framework, you know, sort of um, over-determines how we think about responding to situations of different types of large-scale violence against civilians. So it means that it, it overly um, frames um, mm -hmm. understanding and analysis. Um, that our, The salvation narrative is that to end that kind of violence necessarily requires um, military intervention to end the regime that is perpetrating it. Now, our policy frameworks go across the spectrum. And everyone who works on this, nobody is ridiculous enough to say um, we should always, you know, just have some sort of objective threshold. And once we cross it, always send in X number of troops. Mm -hmm. It's never that simple. There's always a um, continuum. But the idea is that, that, when we see situations of genocide or mass atrocity, that there are simply three categories. Um, and, you know, this does kind of pull from Holocaust literature. Mm -hmm. There are the victims, um, those who will surely die if they're not helped. There are the perpetrators, those who solely want to kill um, these victims. And generally understood um, to want to do it for... Um, uh, you know, whether it's prompted by strategic interest, but I think in a popular mindset is fed by hatred um, of the group. Um, there's been a lot of good research that counters that, but nonetheless, I think that's still out there in the popular mindset. And then there's this third category of rescuers. Right? Those of us who learn about such a situation 
um, and have the capacity um, to intervene and are primarily missing the will. Um, you know, and then you'll have some people include rescuers, you know, sort of those on the ground who decide to go against the, the perpetrator. But this kind of framework um, of the personalities at play sets the situation up so that ending such violence only comes um, with force from the outside. Mm. Um, and I'll say there's a second piece to that narrative, which not only ends the violence, um, but it also establishes a new political dispensation, you know, that, that includes everything from um, trials of the guilty to reparations for the victims to rebuilding to democratic transformation, which, you know, nowadays also means uh, um, uh, changing economic systems, making them more open and more globalized. And, right, so the salvation that's envisioned is not just an ending of violence, but it's also ushering in this kind of ideal state that we imagine to be the end game of all transitions today. Um, and that's not what happens. Yeah. Okay, I'd, I'd love to a couple seconds, just a brief break in. Your voice is perfectly clear, but, but every once in a while I'm getting, I don't know if you're sliding a piece of paper near the mic or what's happening, but... Oh, okay, yeah, I tend to fidget, so I will try to Yeah. <laughs> okay, excellent. Um, Okay, so I'm just going to leave three or four seconds, and I'll I'll start the next question. So, so there are some terms maybe as we start to to think about the the narratives and and that that we need to use to rethink the salvation narrative. There's some terms we should address first. Address first, um, and the first they're both in the title, uh, and the first is mass atrocities. Why why do you choose to use the term mass atrocities? Yeah, so. Um we did initially consider how genocide ends, um, but increasingly, uh, particularly in the policy world, you see people really have come to terms over the last, I don't know, I would say 10 years probably, um, with some of the limitations of that legal definition. Mm-hmm. And the field of genocide studies, you know, has for quite some time tried to, been, you know, well aware of and critical of the limitations of the legal definition but there's no other definition that has any consensus. So I, I think we're stuck with that definition. I don't, I don't see the benefit in continuing to, to try to improve it. Um, so then you have a couple other terms that you could use um, to get this idea of intentional, um, right? So some sense of the planning behind it. Mm-hmm. Um, widespread in the sense of um, taking place in multiple locations. So, again, that gets to planning and organization, um, but also scale of interest. Um, and systematic, which gives you a sense of the thoroughness of violence, um, right, that it, it's carried out um, and perpetrated against a, a significant population. Um, so that borrows a lot of language from the legal definition of crimes against humanity. Um, but um, to me, the legal framework kind of, predetermines a little bit what what the answer should be. And so mass atrocities is a way to use language which is non-legal but still gets that sense of scale, intention, um, and thoroughness that you have, and which I think is more, um, more in line with the popular 
understanding of this kind of violence, and it's also increasingly being used by policymakers. So it resonates with that audience as well. Well, there's three components to the title, and I think everybody knows what how means. <laughs> so obviously the other word that I'd like you to talk about is end. What What is and is not implied in your sense of what end is? Yeah. So, um, yeah, it's a very limited definition of ending. And the authors of our chapters, um, you know, discuss variations um, in endings in each one of them. So I'll address that. What we wanted to do, though, um, was to peel apart the idea of declines and large-scale killing from this idea of that salvation ending, right, the the sort of more utopian um, um, rights-based, justice-based, political, new dispensation, all of that. Not that those are not important goals, but what we found in our studies um, was that they don't all come at once. And so, you know, there there's a difference between the dynamics, the political, military um, forces that cause killing to decline from those which cause a more just future to be built. They're not unrelated, so I'm not mm-hmm. saying that they're... Um, um, you know, like completely different things, but they're not the same. And some of the challenges of being advocates for ending violence, particularly when it's at that large scale, right, which which is not, um, um, I don't know, maybe, I don't know where the line is um, that separates it, but that's obviously a debate that happens in relation to specific cases. Um, but takes different forces. And so what we tried to do in each of the chapters was talk a little bit about the relationship between patterns of killing in each case and then patterns of what happens after. Um, All the cases include several spikes of violence. Um, And again, so sorry, one other thing I have to address is is also killing versus other forms of violence. Um, These are cases of very intensive periods of killing. And that is primarily what we focus on. Uh, when you when you think, though, more largely about how um, oppression and violence are inflicted on groups, obviously there's a much broader scale of of um, forms. You know, even even within periods of intensive organized violence, you, you could have um, sexual violence. Um, you can have large scale theft, torture, um, imprisonment. Um, you know, in addition to then other forms of, you know, de- denying cultural expression, um, of um, changing language rights, right? So there's a there's a much broader scale, and we're well aware of that, and try to address that in the different chapters. Um, but there are different patterns, so that was kind of a key instigation behind um, what we asked each of the authors to focus on, and then to focus on those rise and falls of killing in relation to these other potential types of, of ending. Um, why this set of case studies? Why did you pick the ones you did? Um, yeah, I mean, it's we wanted geographic diversity. Um, so we have, you know, from Guatemala, we have Latin America. Um, we have uh, two African cases, two, sort of three, Alex Duvall, my colleague, and um, 
chapter author, talks about both Sudan and South Sudan, and then Burundi by my colleague Noel Twagirmungu. Um, and then we have Europe with Bosnia-Herzegovina that I wrote on, um, Indonesia, which then covers in Asian um, um, context, and Iraq for the Middle East. So we got that geographic diversity. We also wanted cases, um, I believe in Guatemala is the only one where the author does not talk about a series of different spikes of violence. Um, the others all have multiple periods and so gave us you know, great diversity uh, um, to speak about different types of endings over time. And Guatemala um, does discuss as well a sort of difference between the end and the killing and the cultural impacts on um, Guatemala's Maya population. We're, we're going to dip into individual essays occasionally throughout the the interview, but there's way too much in the book to cover in, in this short time. So, and, and some of which will, in some ways, we'll concentrate on the conclusions. And, and one of the broad conclusions you draw is the fact that endings, and, and, and like beginnings, I guess, of mass atrocities, are often rational calculations about the utility of violence. Um, can you say something about that? Yeah, um, so our sense is that, you know, there's been a lot of work, and I'm backtracking a little, there's been a lot of Please. work on beginnings, mm -hmm. right? And so you have, and I think Ben Valentino um, really crystallized um, and did, a, did some really great research talking about the strategic use of mass killing. Um, and he and others, I think, have really helped sharpen our focus on beginnings a little bit away from ideology and hatred, right, which were thought to be um, more hardwired um, approaches to mass violence. Um, you saw it, I mean, you saw that again in media coverage of Bosnia, you know, which started out talking about it's an ethnic conflict, as if that was all these groups were capable of, of experiencing together, or or Rwanda, you know, calling it tribal as a way to dismiss the politics. And I think then, and, you know, by the 2000s or so, maybe even earlier, but you had a much stronger consensus among people who work in this area from policy and across research that the reason it happens is most often political manipulation um, and that the threat of mass violence and genocide is much higher where leaders feel that they have a really core existential strategic threat. And that's when you see large-scale massive violence. So our question about endings is really consistent um, with the findings about beginnings, um, which is that the dynamics of, of that perception of threat determine when violence will end. So I can imagine someone asking asking you then if if that conclusion that that endings like beginnings are strategic rational calculations, is that suggesting that there is no role for hatred or ideology or that they overlap? Or how do you how how do you see hatred and ideology playing into this? Yeah, so you know historically we see that there are some ideologies um, that have produced 
if not more violence, they've at least in particular periods of time been ideologies that lend themselves to violence, right? Sort of a justification um, for that particular tool that is violence against civilians. And there is a role of intergroup tensions, um, but in none of the places that we have studied, right, is there ever a consistent, um, unwavering place for hatred or for ideology? It always changes over time, and it's possible for certain um, memories and histories to be called upon um, that make it easier to commit violence. Right? So... Um, you know, that's why a lot of the research says that, that, you know, threats of mass atrocities relate to places where it's happened before. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's because those memories are salient. Um, they're strong. And they do create a reservoir of sense of threat and sense of vulnerability between groups that obviously does heighten the possibility for a new period of violence. But the critical turn, um, and I think this is something you mentioned in your introduction that Scott Strauss has um, addressed in his research, but the critical turn that leaders play in, in determining how, uh, how the kind of tensions that are implicit in every society, how they will be engaged with, um, you know, through a, a discourse of, of um, you know, a political discourse of inclusion or exclusion or, you know, conciliation, um, compromise, or through a sort of toolbox of violence, of different modes of oppression, um, ranging from and up to wide-scale killing. Um, I mean, one of, one of the things you talk about... Um, and I'm going to steal a, word, uh, a little bit of a conception from um, one of my interviews from a, a little while ago is, is this way in which that leadership from the top intersects with the meso-level leadership, right? The way in which the, the national leaders intersect with mayors and um, leaders of provinces and leaders of local militia units. And, and one of the conclusions, at least I think I read in your book, is that, that the likelihood of mass atrocities are, is most strong when the interests of both groups align together toward violence. Yeah, I think, I think that is true. And you see it very clearly um, in, um, I think, in Alex's work on Sudan. Yeah. Um, I think it also comes across in my chapter on Bosnia, um, where you had, you know, sort of the center at that point was the former Yugoslav center in Belgrade, um, and then interest of local actors, um, the Bosnian Serbs um, in particular in this case. Um, and you see it in sort of um, the way Fanar Hada describes Iraq, um, and the convergence um, of multiple interests in the post-2003 context, right? So on one side, anti-state, anti-Shiite terrorism groups, violence, right, converge. Those interests converge. Now, there it's not a center periphery, um, but it's multiple alignments. Um, And then, you know, and then against on the other side, the pro-state, pro-Shiite, anti-terrorism. So those multiple agendas. 
and the possibility for a decline, which was not um, fully capitalized on, was when those agendas began to diverge. And I think that is true across the cases that we looked at as well. That when you see multiple, um, the alignment of multiple um, sort of interest agendas, um, that that is extremely dangerous. Yeah, I was really struck and, and honestly somewhat saddened by, and I'm, I'm sorry, I don't know, you just mentioned it, and I'm not sure I'm going to get her name right, but... Um, uh, Fanar Haddad, I guess, is my closest uh, approximation. Her her conclusion strikes me as really pessimistic for the at least the immediate future of Iraq. Yeah, yeah. So Fanar's a guy. Um, uh, my apologies again. <laughs> well, he should be honored to be referenced with a uh, feminine pronoun. Um, um, yeah, I think I think so. I mean, you know, he started doing the research, and we gave at World Peace Foundation, we gave the authors grants to do um, new research on each of these cases. And Fenner laid out, you know, a really compelling research agenda, had the work all lined up. And not only, you know, was it not that the violence remained um, sort of low, but it spiked enormously. Um, you know, in 2013, I believe, is, is the first year of the, the real spike. And it remained very high through 2014 and 15. And so he wasn't, he wasn't able to, to do exactly the research plan that he'd carried out. But the idea of talking about that lull, um, you know, and I think the, the decline started in, in 2008 um, and continued for a couple of years, even that decline was never, it was never, it remains, I mean, if you take a rock body count stats, it remains above 4,000 people killed a year, civilians, um, throughout the lull, right? That's the low point. Um, and I, I think he, his chapter is not hopeful. It was written at a very unhopeful time, and the dysfunction and the layering of different agendas um, in Iraq make it very difficult to see um, I, uh, you know, a really positive future in in any near term. Um, you know, the other thing though is is all the cases do end; they yeah. do end. Um, and Iraq will get better, um, but it would help if 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 the agendas could realign. And and you know, one of the things that he pointed out in his chapter that was really um, helped clarify some of the big picture issues for me. Um, was that in cases where you have a lot of actors involved. Um, so in Iraq, you have, you know, outside states, you have the U.S., obviously a player, Iran, um, Gulf states, uh, neighboring states. You have a very, very weak central government, which at times it's hard to talk about in terms of being a state, in terms of capacity, but almost another non-state actor. And then you have multiple non-state actors, you know, with militias on both sides, with elements of international terrorism. In cases like this, um, the idea of, of the possibility of an ending, very simply as a decline in killing, is contingent on the dynamics, right? How can you change so that a preponderance, never all of the, the actors, um, that their agendas start to feed into a de-escalatory um, 
movement, right? That, that it's not, it's not a moment, right? It's not a definitive decline, but it's, can you make the factors that contribute, that converge and, and start moving towards an ending? Um, can you, are there moments of possibility basically? Right. So it's not the same as when you have a strong state actor. So if you think of, of, um, even Bosnia where you had three sides, right. And you had a military strength, um, throughout much of the war of the Bosnian Serbs backed by, by Serbia, um, in the former Yugoslavia, right. Where you had the capacity to just sort of hold apart two up to three agendas, right. And try to converge and bring them together. How do you do that when there are six, when there are seven, right. Or even more, um, think of Syria in the same context. Um, endings then are a much different beast. And I think we'll start seeing more patterns like that. Um, as we see the location of mass violence today shifting from those strong state, more authoritarian models to weaker states, you know, employing some measures of democracy, right? Which means there's some diffusion of power, even if it's not within the security sector, um, trying to accommodate lots of interest, um, and with a lot of actors in the mix. Um, yeah, it's, I, it's, it's, not, it's a different scene. So, so you started to kind of then introduce this, another concept of another big conclusion you reach, which is, which is pointing to the end of the cold war as a, as maybe not a turning point, but at least a, a point of, of inflection in mass atrocities and the ways mass atrocities end. Um, could you maybe kind of keep expanding on that idea? How, how did that matter? Yeah, so that is both a good news story and a bad news <laughs> story. Um, so the scale overall um, of killing in incidents where there is widespread killing, and here even thinking more broadly than um, typical, the cases that are typically associated with genocide or mass atrocities, just think of high fatality incidents, right? So um, I would include in that the Vietnam War, but also, you know, partition of India together with, um, you know, something like the Khmer Rouge, which would be a more traditionally understood within the ideology model of genocide, even if it's not, a lot of it was political. Um, those types of incidents have declined precipitously. With the exception of Syria and Iraq, the cases that we're looking at don't rival the historic um, scale of violence. Um, I mean, even if you think of, of Burundi um, with it, its history, um, you know, with multiple phases, um, Bosnia, again, it's another one of decline over time. Indonesia will show a decline over time. Time. You think of you know the violence in sixty five, sixty six against the communists. The first, uh, um, the intervention into East Timor to, to decapitate the the resistance there, versus what happened later in the nineteen nineties. So across the board, and again, I'll, I'll sort of put caveats by Iraq and Syria um, for now. Um, we see a decline in the scale and number of these incidents. And that, I think, is the very positive story of what happened in international politics at the end of the Cold War, um, which is not just the rise 
of the anti-atrocity agenda, which really starts a little bit later um, in the 1990s. But it's also part of the emphasis on democratization, um, the rise of a human rights discourse, which basically we're just paying attention to this as a core central issue, and this being violence against civilians. Um, greater communications, greater trade relationships, right, so greater interconnectivity on lots of different levels around the world. This is paid off. And I think then the focus then that starts coming post-Rwanda, post-Bosnia, um, and then some structural institutional changes, right, with changes in peacekeeping um, following the Brahimi report. You have the rise of the idea of a responsibility to protect, and it's um, you know, turned into, into principle um, with the World Summit in 2005. Um, so you have that at the UN. You have U.S. policy changing. Right? So you have a lot of factors converging to basically say violence against civilians will be treated as an issue in and of itself, as a priority. We will pay attention to it. Policy initiatives will be made in response to it. Um, media will cover it, and that will be the central focus. All of these things, I think this is a systemic turn that has helped reduce the number of uh, civilians who are killed across the board. With those caveats. So what are different about some of these other cases. Um, well, and, and let me go back just on sort of the 1990s as a turning point. Mm -hmm. um, you also have, um, so you have in, in the Cold War, um, very little critique of violence against civilians except across the line, right? So it can be used by Western actors to criticize the Soviet Union or Soviet Union or Soviet bloc actors to criticize um, regimes backed by the West. But you have very little criticism then within it, um, and particularly not public. Um, and, and you also have very capable states, for the most part, committing that violence. So that all changes, too, um, in, into the post-Cold War period. Um, and it gives us a hint of what we need to do to continue that trend. Um, so, so let me interrupt you right there. I'll, I'll let you come back to that. But I don't. So I'm thinking mostly of my own students. Yeah. And and that because that's who I interact with probably most of all. Um, I don't see my students recognizing that kind of decline. I my students seem to think that this world that they're living in is as bad or worse as the world and just gauging your end of your PhD, we must be somewhat the same age yeah. that we grew up in. Yeah, so I think um, it's out there. I mean, that story is out there. It's out there in terms of, you know, if you think of Steven Pinker's book um, yeah. on it or, um, you know, work studying, um, in, you know, political science work studying um, declines in violence, the number of conflicts, um, the scale of violence, um, um, associated with the conflicts that do exist. And obviously there's a really high correlation between conflict and genocide. So the question of why is it not understood um, and, and gets back to a really important one. And I think in part it's because we pay attention. Mm -hmm. um, and so when you're paying attention to violence against civilians, you see it. 
and you see it in a lot of places. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, that's good. That's great. <laughs> that has contributed to the decline. But it does, I think, also contribute to a sense of anxiety um, that it's everywhere and getting worse and that there's no difference. I mean, I even heard that. I even heard this argument in some ways um, between um, um, uh, a colleague who was just finishing her PhD on Burundi and was facing questions, you know, about um, was having to defend her, her thesis. And they're like, look, Burundi went through, you know, multiple waves of violence, notably in 72. There's another smaller one, which still has 10,000 people um, within a very short time period, months, killed. And then you also have the start of the Civil War, right, with large-scale violence in 93, which then continues and then unravels into this this war. How is what's happening today in Burundi any different, right, politically? Um, you know, and I remember, you know, she, she did a really fantastic job of describing the political differences, and there are many. But the other thing that's important is the scale. So Burundi made international agendas, right? It didn't hit headlines necessarily. This isn't like the front page of a New York Times type of case, but it was on the agenda of the African Union. It was on the agenda of the U.S., of the EU, of the U.N., um, of the French, you know, all these major actors in Central Africa, because they knew that there was a contested election that was coming up last year, last spring, which ended up being delayed. There was an attempted coup. Violence was really high. And within a year, um, the core political situation is not resolved. There was a spike in violence in December, December 17th, right around there. And you still have ongoing uh, core problems, right, which still need to be addressed. But in a year's time, the estimates are over 400 people have been killed. Hmm. Now, that's way too many people. And, and, you know, having smarter policies, more politically adept, more focused, and probably most important, more international consensus on what the answer should be. And then you can put coherent pressure. But that's a fundamental difference from 10,000. That's not the same situation. And that is a result of people caring and paying attention in implementing policies that name, shame, call people out, um, are paying attention before the crisis gets to its worst moment. So I think we should be, we should be really, um, we should take more time and more effort to describe the exact character of what's happening and how it relates to the frameworks that have developed. And I think there's, there's some, there's a lot to be encouraged when one does that. Um, um. I'm intrigued again by, the, by this idea of narrative and, and, and what you're suggesting essentially is attempting to use more careful documentation and more careful explanation as a way of, of changing the narrative. Um, you didn't mention metaphors um, specifically in your earlier discussion, but, but you talk about metaphors in your, your book. And one of the metaphors you talk about is the idea of a toolkit, um, so I'm wondering if you could talk about this idea of a toolkit of policy strategies and, and and how this metaphor has played a role in um, in shaping responses to to mass atrocities. 
Yeah, so the toolkit started from um, a really smart, intelligent place. People um, didn't want to have the story that if we think mass atrocities are threatened, all we can do is call in, you know, the massive, overwhelming international armed intervention, so military intervention. And instead of that, then the next step was, well, what are the things you can do short of military intervention? And so you had a strong effort, and I think it's really advocates, and I think it's interesting, um, you know, someone who's got moved between worlds of advocacy, education, but now also research. Um, this is an area where the advocates have driven the agenda, and I think research is, you know, racing to catch up um, and to give more depth to some of the the innovations that they've been trying to 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 stimulate. So the idea of the toolbox was then, okay, what else can we do? We can't do large-scale military intervention everywhere. It doesn't make sense. What can we do? And so then you had a number of efforts trying to say, here are things you can do. You can do naming and shaming. You can have, you know, sort of diplomatic sanctions. You can have economic sanctions. Um, you know, military tools short of intervention. So safe havens, targeted strikes, um, Right, all that. Um, and the idea was to, to create, and then it became, I think, a little bit overly systematized, you know, as if to say um, that all of these tools are available and they exist on a continuum. Um, and, and I think it started to give across a, a, a narrative that, you know, a, a, an almost programmatic narrative that if this is happening, implement X, Y, and Z. And if the violence continues, then we're all the way up to military intervention at the end of that continuum. So it remains there. Um, and I think, um, and that's obviously a more um, sort of programmatic way of describing than takes place in any case. And so policymakers who work on cases will, would would never think, oh yeah, that's an accurate description. Like we programmatically went through a warning sign <laughs> response and then Right, so I mean, nobody thinks that's, thinks that's actually how it happens. Um, but the idea, the concept of a toolbox, I think, still gives us the idea that it's us, right, on the outside, mm -hmm. choosing, sort of looking through our policy network to decide which mode of coercion would be most appropriate to force people to halt violence at which particular moment. Um, and there are a couple things that that does. One, um, and I think most problematic, problematically, um, it positions outside actors as being thoroughly on the outside. You know, almost like a surgeon like looking at um, some kind of, of internal problem to a body, you know, body politic, and trying to decide which is the best operation or medicine um, with which to fix it. And in this more interconnected world, that's the wrong way to think about prevention and response. Right? We don't ever have that clean slate that we begin with. And so in some ways, the idea of a toolbox can act as a block for rethinking more systematically how do overarching policies before, after, during um, fuel or contribute to violence um, without thinking that we have this, this clean slate that we just suddenly jump in to fix the problem. 
Um, the second thing is I do think it's still problematic to have the idea of coercive military intervention on a continuum with other measures. Um, it is uh, the reason, right, the UN um, and the Charter, um, you know, basically delegitimized uh, military intervention um, is because it is so outrageously destabilized. Um, and it opens, you open that box and you have no idea what pours out. This is not to say that military intervention should never be used, but it should not be assumed to be on the same continuum uh, with other modes of responding. Um, and it should always be last resort, I think, particularly coercive, right? I mean, there's a, there's a huge role that peacekeeping can play. That's consensual. That means the state, you have permission to intervene. It is not a light undertaking to overthrow a state. Uh, Libya, Iraq um, should certainly provide evidence to that. I, I'm, I'm thinking as you go, I'm glad that, that, that you and uh, this interview and, and the one with Scott Strauss are, are going to be relatively close together because I think the two of these books can be read really profitably together as a discussion about this idea of a toolkit. Uh, and what role it has played and what role it, it, it can play. Because both of you are interrogating this idea in very interesting ways. Um, one of the things that came out to me from, from Duvall's essay is, in fact, that, some, that the implication of the idea that endings are, are rationally calculated means that sometimes elements of the toolkit can actually backfire. And he... He talks about the ways in which international sanctions or international uh, arrest warrants can actually limit the willingness of national actors to um, conclude the, the violence. Yeah, we've got a weird case with um, mass atrocities where the usual protocols that would, um, right, and, and the centrality of exceptionalism. In response, but the exceptions that are allowed are always the ones for sort of increasingly coercive international application, um, and rather than um, exceptions that might alter policies, particularly in the near term, um, to make an ending more possible. I mean, this is a long, convoluted way of the the sort of peace versus justice argument, um, which I think is, is one that has to be taken seriously and, and not as absolutes, um, but in response to particular cases. What's... Yeah, that, yeah. Sorry, so, so that also comes through, I think, in the essay about Guatemala, where Roddy Brett points out that, that genocide continues after the end of mass atrocities. Yeah, and what's interesting, too, is the way Roddy talks about the final peace agreement in Guatemala. Right, so you had huge spike of violence, 81 to 83, um, after which point the government had thoroughly sort of securitized the remaining populations as part of a development plan, which leaves them um, impoverished and malnourished with horrible malnourishment rates even today. Um and then a peace agreement signed in the 1990s, right, which 
I, there was no more insurgent threat, not really. Um, the government had accomplished its goals easily. So what was the role of that peace agreement? Um, and his argument is really to sort of put a stamp of approval on the liberal credentials of the state. So it's a performance um, that the state is able to engage in and still protect a lot of its core interest. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's an interesting essay, um, as, as all of them are. I, and, and we're starting to run short on time, but I, I would be unfair if I asked you to talk about everybody else's essay but your own. Yeah. Um, and, and one of the things I notice in your essay about Bosnia is, is again, this sense in which narratives that we accept as true actually aren't. And, and a couple of them come stand out from your essay. One of them is, the I think, a widespread perception that the violence against civilians, the mass atrocities, continued throughout the conflict. And the other is that it's outside intervention that ended the conflict. Um, yeah, in Bosnia, I mean, it's impossible in Bosnia to say outside intervention didn't have a role. It, it played a, a big role. Um, but the argument that I wanted to, what I wanted people to understand with that was that the scale and direction and focus of the violence was really at its height in those first few months. Um, which is not to say that civilians, they did become targeted um, throughout. I mean, there were patterns of that conflict that were brutal. And, you know, when you talk to people, um, who lived there during it, um, even in periods where the killing declined, right? So you have something like close to 40% of this, all the civilians killed, and it's about 30,000 some civilians killed during the conflict, were killed between April when the war started and then the end of summer, so the end of August into September. You see a sharp drop-off. There are new areas of violence, right? And so then the front lines consolidate, um, the safe havens, right, particularly, um, are protected, and that does stabilize. So you have to you have to um, acknowledge international action in relation to those that could have altered this pattern. Um, but you have with the front lines stabilizing, um, you still have violence in Srebrenica and sorry um, Sarajevo throughout, and Srebrenica um, and other places. But the scale shifts thereafter. Um, and so the question is, in those first few months, what changed at that point? It's the dynamics of the armed conflict, right? How, in our paying attention to human rights issues and to violence against civilians, it's also really important to pay attention to the old sort of war story about front lines, center of gravity, and capacity. Um, you also see that the Serbs no longer have that outrageous advantage that they had at the beginning. They never really lose it throughout the war, but they never really enjoyed it to the extent that they did in the first few months at any point throughout the rest of the war. Um, and you have the resistance. That's a story of the war in Bosnia that I think is, um, is under-recognized. Um, what the Bosnian government was able to do in terms of its military resistance, even given an arms embargo, which put them at incredible disadvantage. Um, and in part because they also were, were selling a story of victimhood. And I think that's one of the worst legacies of that conflict. Uh, it's very hard to do politics from the perspective of sort of righteous grievance. No matter how justified it might be, it's, it's, a, very, um, it's a very poor starting place 
for a political grounds of a state. We see that in Iraq as well. Um, and so then the idea, though, that Bosnia ended with just NATO dropping a few bombs and civilians were suddenly safe again. Um, it, that's kind of, I mean, that's sort of a, a um, you know, harsh sort of version of it. But that's how the story, I think, in many ways has been incorporated. It's a success story, right? That we didn't do enough in the beginning. We had peacekeepers, but they weren't protecting civilians. And then following, you know, Srebrenica and genocide there, following bombing in Sarajevo, which again, you know, hit the uh, large civilian population. Finally, NATO got its nerve up and went in and bombed heavily and bombed the Serbs to make concessions at the peace table. Um, that's not completely inaccurate, but it completely forgets the ground war, which was always the war in Bosnia. It's a war of maps. It's a war of who controlled which territory on the ground and could consolidate the control. So that, I think, led to people taking um, a simpler view of what it takes to end a war and to end violence against civilians than is justified by the case of Bosnia. Um, it took a ground war. And it took reforging alliances between the Bosnian government and the Croatian government, um, defeating um, or pushing back the Bosnian Serbs. And it also took prying apart what we talked about earlier, those relationships between Serbia and the Bosnian Serbs, between Croatia and the Croatian, uh, Bosnian Croats. Um, and so the story of that war ending um, is much more complicated. Um, and the story of the civilian violence against civilians ending is much sadder. Um, I, it's not as the attempt to sort of redeem international presence um, with NATO bombing, I think, is misplaced. Well, there's not lots more. We, there's lots more we could talk about in this with this book. Um, it's it's a wonderfully rich and, and interesting book, and I encourage listeners to go find it and read it. Um, but we've taken a lot of your time, um, and, and and so I guess I always end with with a couple questions that are always the same. And, and the first one is pretty simple: Is there something that you read, or perhaps watched, or heard as you were thinking about this issue that? that you would recommend to our listeners? Um, another way of phrasing that is, in the unlikely event that I get all of my grading done <laughs> in the next three days, what should I read this weekend? Okay, so it's been a little while because it takes so long to yes. volume and write. So I'm not sure if the title I'm going to give you matches the time period mm -hmm. of the writing. Um, but one of the books that's been haunting me and it's surprisingly it's it's about us it's a domestic book um in terms of how people live in the wake of state-sponsored violence um and and the way it unravels um relationships and rewrites them is ta-nehisi coates book between the world and me and i know it's on everybody's list of recommended text um about us and race relations but I think it's really important for those of us who work on you know, international issues and contexts that are not ours um, is is to to think through the you know that that really painful rescripting of interpersonal relations 
um, you know, the sense of possibility that's the horizon on, on, you know, sort of everything on personal, on social, on political, on justice systems, how it's rewritten when you have institutionalized state-sponsored violence. Um, and again, this feeds into, you know, how we started this discussion, you know, I was talking about respect for, for violence, respect for the depths of what it does, um, and, and how it pains people, um, for decades. Um, and now how does this relate to a book about endings that doesn't really get into these complex endings? Um, to me, it's, it's also a sense of humility about what can be done from this international paradigm, which is almost always crisis driven, um, get in, here's top 10 things you need to do, change the policies, implement transitional justice, move on, blah, blah, blah. Um, you know, is to just be a little bit more humble. Um, about what outside policies can do, but then do those things and do them consistently. Um, I think principled, consistent international policy does more than a lot of tinkering with things that take a lot of time. There you just support internal actors, the ones who are doing the right things. I have to say it's a, it's, it's a remarkable book because it makes me both more optimistic and sadder at the same time. So, <laughs> I think that's good. I'm not sure. Yeah. I mean, it's hard. This, there's so much ethical framework around our topic, you know, this topic of study, um, because it should be. I mean, it should be there, but sometimes it gets in the way of that hard-nosed um, focus. Um and I don't know, that balance is hard. I mean, we feel, I, I, probably all of us who work on it feel hard. I mean, you know, to, to write something that we feel is rigorous, professional, intellectually, um, well-supported um, on topics that are you know, just pure brutality. Um, it's hard. It's a hard field to work in sometimes, but rewarding. Well, that, I guess, leads me to my next question, which is a simple, maybe a simple one. I hope it's a simple one. What are you working on now? Yeah, so I'm doing a much, much smaller project, um, at least in terms of, of, you know, this is like, what, six different cases and over multiple mm -hmm. decades. Um, I'm starting a new project looking at survivor um, survivors of violence who work in memorial museums. And hmm. um, my hope is to start it out at the Red Terror Martyrs Memorial Museum in Ethiopia. Um, huh. um, they've done a really lovely job pulling together a museum there and it's a place where the narrative of violence is neither denied by the state but nor is it the state's self-rationalizing discourse right which is a different narrative and so memory has a really curious place there and you know, it's just really honored to meet some dedicated people um who work there and you know, just a chance to hear their stories and, and better understand how they're doing what they do in the context in which they do it so I'm looking forward to I'm looking forward to learning more from them and, and with them. Well, it sounds like a wonderful project. I'm really looking forward to it being done, and I'm sure six months or four months or something like that. But whenever it's done, um, I'd love to have you back on the show um, to talk about it. But thanks so much for being with us today. And thank you very much for inviting me. You've been listening to an interview with Bridget Conley-Zilkich about her book, How Mass Atrocities End. If you enjoyed this interview... You can listen to previous podcasts through iTunes or from the webpage for New Books and Genocide Studies, part of the New Books Network of podcasts. 
I hope you'll join me next time when we continue our occasional series of podcasts that addresses the question of how genocides might be prevented or mitigated. Later in the series, I'll interview Carrie Booth Wallen. Next time, though, I'll speak with James Waller about his new book, Confronting Evil, Engaging Our Responsibility to Prevent Genocide. I hope you'll come back for the series. Until then, thanks for the download, and have a great month.